The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. D, thanks. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the bear bounce. Is one coming? Is it already over? We'll debate the state of stocks and your money with the investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jim Labenthal, also on set right here. Liz Young and Joe Terranova. Let's check the markets. Dow is coming off seven straight weeks of losses. It just literally went positive a few moments ago. So we're good for about 50 on the Dow. Not much conviction on the S&P or the Nasdaq or Liz, this much talked about bear market bounce. Now, we were up a lot in a couple of days. S&P was up 4% from Thursday's low. Nasdaq was up 6% from Thursday's low. Is that it? Is it over before it starts? Hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a ton of conviction in the bear market bounce either. I don't think it's going to last. I think we're going to continue to see these little rallies and then give backs probably through the month of June. I think we have to get a little bit more behind us first. The next Fed hike, we probably have to get two more Fed hikes behind us. We can't confirm peak inflation. And I think the market is still confused about which direction we go now that people are lowering all their growth expectations. So, yes, I think things still have to come in a little bit. If you look at some of the measures, the technical measures, the valuation measures, there's still a little bit further to go on the downside. All right. So, Joe, Krinsky, right? Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG. We, we, we cite him all the time. He thinks there's going to be a bounce near term, mm-hmm. likely towards 4,200. Mm-hmm. I mean, OK, we'll take it, I suppose. Not a final low, he says, but enough evidence to suggest summer chop. Even Mike Wilson, right, Mr. Negative. He says rally, then he says lower. In S&P 500 terms, we think that level is close to 3,400, which is where both valuation and technical support lie. So, right, even those calling for a bump think we're going to get, uh, we're going to go right back down. The opportunity is there, that's for sure. You've got a point of reference that if you want to trade against it, you can. Uh, Some things in the last several days have been positive for the bulls. I think the market was positioned pretty bearishly, and we had some news that, we should have had a bearish response to it. We did not. You now have. You uh, take that as a positive, right? You I mean, take that you, absolutely. If you don't have a negative response to negative news. Mm-hmm. It's one of the signs that people say, hey, see, I told you. Yep. That's why we're oversold and correct. we're due for a bounce. Yeah, correct. Um, you, also, you also have a lot of companies that are going to start buying back their stock, taking advantage of this precipitous decline. So I think you'll see that as well. But I, I'll caution everyone. I don't think where you want to go is to the high valuation, hyper growth, PE type of stocks. I think today is indicative of what you want to own. You want to own energy. You absolutely want to own energy. Anytime energy corrects, you need to be a buyer of energy, both oil and natural gas. You want to buy healthcare. You want to buy quality companies. You want to buy the companies that are in the Dow. You want to be sure that you have quality in your portfolio. Don't give in to the temptation of trying to catch what really right now looks like a chainsaw for a lot of these stocks. Now, Farmer Jim, I'm gathering, has gotten a little nervous over the last several weeks. Our resident bull who says, don't worry, this is not a recession. It's but a correction. And this happens from time to time. Jim, I know that the pullback has been more severe than probably you thought. And I think you've admitted as much on on this network. 
Uh, but there's not a lot of conviction behind even the, the most, if you want to call them bullish calls of late. Are you any different? Well, look, first off, I've got to give a, a nod to uh, Joe on the falling chainsaw uh, analogy. I hadn't thought of that, uh, and it made me laugh. But unfortunately, where we are right now doesn't make me laugh because there's a tug of war between fundamental analysts like me who, on the one hand, will say, yeah, things have gotten cheap enough. We've still got good earnings growth. David Costin even sees 6 8% earnings growth over the next uh, couple of years. And then the technicians who, you know, you, you uh, sort of implied that Jonathan Krinsky's bounce target was very light. And I would agree. Jonathan's been very right all along. Very right. And he's representative of the, of the technicians who are saying things like you haven't had a high enough put to call ratio. You don't have enough stocks trading below their 50 day moving average. So on the other side are the technicians saying this isn't over. Now, unfortunately for me and, you know, full clarity and full honesty, where that balance really moves is inflation indications, which last week were very disappointing. And, you know, I was looking forward to it. And it was very disappointing because it does not do anything to relax the Fed. Now, we'll get some Fed speak this week. Uh, Mr. Bullard is going to speak, I think, later today. He's the hawkish, most hawkish of the bunch, if you ask me. I'd like to hear what his comments are. If he tilts more towards 50 basis points, and he hinted at that last week, at the next meeting, I could get a little bit more enthusiastic. But look, I do believe the fundamental picture is supportive. I'm not selling my stocks because I see great results from the company. But I'd feel a heck of a lot more comfortable if I saw some better signs of inflation waning. But you conveniently left out the fact when you mentioned David Costin at Goldman Sachs that while he boosted his earnings growth forecast, right, to plus 8% from plus 5%, he cut his year-end target for stocks to 4,300 from 4,700. Yeah. So the optimism, even that comes yeah. with what seems to be decent earnings projections from someone like that, wanes when it comes to what stocks can really do. And frankly, that might prove to be optimistic when you're sitting at 4,000 and others suggest that you could go much lower. He does as well. A recession would see the index, the S&P, fall to 3,600 as the P.E. drops to 15 times. Yeah. And, you know, Scott, excellent point. I didn't mean to skip over it, but this is a question about what is the right multiple on the market. And this is at least part of what Mike Wilson is saying in his bearish thesis. If we are right now at 17 times forward earnings and I say to you that's cheap enough, by no means am I saying it can't get cheaper. And that's what Mike's saying. And that's what David's saying is certainly this could get to 14 and 15 times. It's not the sort of thing I'm going to trade around because as likely as the idea that the market says, wait a second, this is cheap enough and we rally. And again, most importantly, on a stock-specific basis, I see the results coming in from a Qualcomm, a Paramount, a Cleveland Cliffs. There's no way I want to sell these and take the risk of being out of them when the market realizes how good they're doing fundamentally. This is the greatest question, right? Is the market cheap enough? Have stocks come down enough to make them attractive that you want to buy them here? Mike Santoli's with us. He's been looking at the state of the market right now. Has there been an overshoot of selling? What is your best data suggest to you? You've seen a lot of markets. You've seen periods like this before. So what do you think? 
Yeah, I think, Scott, in the short term, uh, things got washed out enough for a plausible low last week. That's about as far as I would go. I don't think it's an overshoot in terms of, you know, massive outflows from equity funds, one thing people might want to see. Uh, clearly, valuations, I think they're back in the neutral normal zone as opposed to necessarily becoming super cheap, unless you look at, let's say, the small and mid-cap indexes, which are very, very cheap relative to their 10-year histories. Uh, and if you kind of exclude the top 50 largest stocks from the S&P, they're back in line. So valuation risk has come down. Um, that's not the same as saying that things got so desperate and washed out that that was the low last week. So I know it's, it's, we're in the zone of uh, a very condition, conditional uh, type projections. And so that's why I think it makes sense. It's interesting. If you went to Thursday, bulls and bears alike said, well, this thing's got to bounce pretty soon. If we're not crashing, if we're not in an actual, you know, uh, market seizing up type event, we'll bounce soon. Now everybody agrees, well, the bounce can carry a little bit higher. The, the disagreement comes in whether, in fact, there's real value and whether, uh, you know, we can actually march uh, appreciably higher and make up a lot of the losses. And I, th I don't think we, we have a good answer to that. Uh, to me, the Fed seems to cap the market psychologically here for the summer because they're not going to be moving much, uh, you know, in response to the data we get in the next couple of months. So that's sort of where it is. If we get any numbers that say, you know, the ultimate end point of the Fed tightening is is lower, that might be uh, slightly more bullish. So I, I think it, I think we're in this zone of uh, it's good enough to get people more interested. Now, if you want to look at individual stocks, I don't know if you don't think there's a recession and targets at 14 plus point something times earnings. Is that cheap enough? That might be cheap enough if you actually believe the consumer is in good shape. So you have pockets that really have uh, gotten hit pretty hard that probably uh, are looking a little bit more like the risk rewards improved versus the overall S&P 500. Part of the problem is we use like Mike historical precedent to sort of try and figure out, oh, is this another X? Is this another yeah. 0809? Is this another 2000 to 2002 for the NASDAQ? It gets people feeling like you're afraid to buy some of the NASDAQ stocks because you think that it may go down further. And I'm wondering if the, the most egregious, if you want to use that word, excesses had little to nothing to do with where stocks actually may have been. It's more of the other stuff, the cryptos, the NFTs, um, the things that already really kind of self-corrected, SPACs, sure. et cetera. So maybe, maybe there has been an overshoot particularly in things like the Nasdaq? Well, I, I think a lot of the stuff that was adjacent to crypto or sort of fed on the same uh, kind of, you know, source of adrenaline. Yeah, a lot of that stuff has come down. You see, you know, the ARK uh, Innovation Fund has went down 75 percent peak to trough. That's what the Nasdaq did over two and a half years in the Nasdaq bust. It's not a perfect one for one, but it shows you that a lot of it's been drained away. To me, the big question is whether it's just been this rolling process and we're now, you know, in that moment when it starts to pull on the biggest index stocks and it starts to, you know, interact with these fears of a recession where it's the real, more real companies and it's the earnings base of the market that's now uh, up for question as opposed to are we paying 15 or 20 times sales for the last, you know, uh, software IPO to come out. Recession changes everything, right, Liz? I mean, that, that's what changes the game in terms of whether stocks are cheap or they need to get cheaper because the economy is going to regress and retract. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think the market right now is trading as if we might be approaching a recession. And, and there are signals, right? We had a yield curve inversion. We've had one quarter already of a contraction in GDP. I don't think we're going to see a recession this year. So at some point, we'll have to realize that and the market will recover from it. But I think the recovery here is that maybe just volatility comes down. I don't know that we're going to produce a ton of better returns, especially, which I'm sure Joe will back me up on, you get closer to midterms, you go through the summer, you get closer to midterms in early fall, and there's going to be more chop until we can get past that piece. So I do think that the second half of this year is better than the first, but we can all agree the first was pretty bad. So the second half probably a little bit smoother once we realize inflation may have peaked we're not going to go into a recession, but we're not going to confirm that stuff until into the third quarter. That's why it's isn't it going to be difficult then, Joe, to get any. I mean, I know the prevailing view from 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 folks has been, OK, first half, I'm going to use Tom Lee's word treacherous. Mm -hmm. Liz kind of, kind of painted the same picture. You get through the first half and maybe it's a little more calm in the second half. Mm -hmm. I would almost take the other side because the Fed's going to continue to tighten. They may have to tighten more than we think. Mm -hmm. Even if fl inflation has peaked, doesn't mean it's going to roll over. You start to get earnings projections coming down. The analysts are too optimistic. They're just delusional and they haven't gotten the message yet. And they're going to have to take the numbers down. So, you know, listen, we're trying to give the viewers where they could find opportunities in the market. But, but without question, I've said this for weeks now on air, this is a process of time. This is not a moment in time. That is not what bottoming ultimately looks like. So to, to answer... Uh, it, to answer or respond to your thought there, Scott, what's the cost of capital going to be? Tell me with finality what the cost of capital is going to be, because that has been the biggest challenge for all these businesses. The cost of capital is no longer free, and I don't know what that cost of capital ultimately is going to be. So that's why last week you saw outflows in crypto. You saw outflows in Apple. You saw outflows in gold. You saw outflows in energy. You saw outflows, the largest you haven't uh, witnessed since April of 2020 in taxable fixed income. The only major asset class where there was inflows last week was treasuries. So I, I think it goes back to what I said to begin the show, where, yes, you could take ownership of some assets here, but you really have to trade up in quality because I don't know how much it's going to cost me to fund my operations. Yes, yeah, I hear you. But Mike, and last point for you on this, uh, the only reason, well, maybe not the only, but certainly a principal reason why the market stopped going down for a moment and we had a bit of a bounce is because names like Apple and Microsoft stopped going down. And they were where Apple was, you know, one had a 130 uh, piece to it is now back at 146. Why isn't the market able to have any follow through today from what last Thursday and Friday did? Because Apple's doing nothing. It's flat. You can't, to your point, have the mega caps get continually upset for the market to find stability. It just cannot happen. Well, yes, if you're defining the market as the S&P 500, that's exactly right. And obviously, there's a lot of money in it, and people basically anchor to what it is doing. Um, you know, the equal-weighted S&P has been outperforming the headline by, you know, three percentage points pretty much all year. So it's not as, um, you know, all, all or nothing as those stocks make it seem. But I, I agree that if the job is not done in terms of, you know, draining away the, the valuation excesses and making sure uh, that, in fact, those things are back into line, the Apples and the, the Microsofts, uh, with what we, you know, have come to expect in terms of valuations under more normal terms, 
pre-pandemic levels, then yes, it should be uh, at least a net drag on the S&P 500. But I don't think that necessarily tells you if we go to major new lows or, in fact, uh, last week ended up being a decent you know, pivot to, uh, to, to do some buying. I, th- I think real quick, the, the way to think about the declines and the bounce in the Apple or the Microsoft is understand we're, we're reintroducing buybacks once again. 75% of all buyback authorizations are algorithmic. The other 25% is discretionary. Well, on, on a day where the market's coming in higher, I, I don't think companies are going to be aggressively buying back their stock. So Apple, when it's at 138 or 139, sure. That, that's a point where that discretionary component of the buyback is going to enter the market and add the stability. And I think that's the way you have to think about stocks overall. You can't expect that on a consistent basis every day, companies are going to be buying back their stock. It's only when markets are down significantly. Mike, I appreciate it very much. Mike Santoli, I'll see you later on, on overtime, of course. So Jim Lamenthal, let me pose this question to you this way, um, because you're more positive than most. What positions in, in your portfolio are you most worried about? Are they the ones you talk about on a, on a more regular basis, a, a Cliffs, um, a GM? W- which are they? I'm not, I don't want to name the names for you. I'm yeah, just thinking good, of the ones we let, talk no, no, about a good more, more often than not. It's a good question, and I think my answer is going to inform, again, where my position is. The ones that I am worried about are the ones that have operational issues. You know, patient zero is Boeing, okay? So I'm worried about companies where within the walls of the company, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. But I'm not worried about, take Boeing as an example, I'm not worried about it from the point of view that I see the airline industry crashing into a recessionary environment. I just don't see that either in the TSA passenger counts or the state of the labor market or the pent up demand for international travel if the travel restrictions go down. So my point being, and again, this speaks to who I am and what my stance is, I worry about companies not doing their job. I'm not worried about an economy that looks pretty darn good and yes, may change, but looks pretty darn good right now. See, so you're not worried about you're not worried about any macro deterioration, if you will, uh, affecting a cliffs. Not at you're this not point. Worried not, about, not at this point. You're, you're not worried about continued, you know, supply issues, PC slowdowns, things like that affecting a, a Qualcomm, uh, five, you know, a handset demand. That's a great waning, example. And things like that. No, it's a great. It's a. It, that is a fabulous example. Just take the chips for a second. Because in that context of a chip shortage, there are winners and losers. I'm actually not at all worried about Qualcomm, not after the guidance they put out just a few weeks ago. GM, on the other hand, and listen, I still like the company and I think there's tremendous pent up demand. But I would like to see a heck of a lot more chips flowing into their production lines so that their inventory at their dealer lots can fill up. But my point being here is, I'm really at a company-specific level examining things. And when I put the bottom-up approach together, I see far more positives than negatives, although there are some blemishes, and we can cover them, Boeing being one of them. Well, I know, but I'm I'm thinking of like auto demand, handset demand, steel demand. I mean, the things that you would genuinely think about in a a cycle that starts to turn downwards, right? Uh, uh, Hitting the stocks of a Cliffs, a, a GM... Uh, Qualcomm, not to mention others. At the heart of this, Scott, to me, is labor. 
and the strength of the labor market. And I know that there have been layoff announcements in some of the stay-at-home beneficiary companies, you know, like a Peloton or a Carvana. Perversely or ironically, and this ain't going to sound great, but that's actually good for the economy because that allows workers to go where they are needed, particularly in the travel, leisure, hospitality, and services industry. Now, I'm not saying an Amazon worker can be an airplane pilot. I mean, I'm not an idiot, but there is some fungibility on the margins of labor, and that actually does help to get labor where it's needed from where it's not. So I would ask you, Joe, that the same question about Great question, the, by the the positions way. that you're, you're most worried about. But let's do this. Let's let's take a quick break. Sure. I have a couple of names that you sold, which suggest that you were worried about yep. them. They were already on their way down. Mm-hmm. We'll do that reveal after this break. Plus, a longtime Netflix bear says it's now the time to buy the stock. We'll debate that in our calls of the day. We're back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about some of these moves you made. You sold two things, right? Um, Interactive Brokers, Mm -hmm. which was down 16% in one month, and Chipotle, you sold, was down 19% in a month. Why these two names, beside the fact that they were down? Well, first of all, I always have a risk management process in place, and I know that gets boring to the viewers, but I'm never going to take an exorbitant loss at any position. But beyond that, you asked an excellent question before. When you're studying your portfolio, I think a lot of people always look at the portfolio and they say, well, what do I feel best about? It's, it's what are you most troubled by? Two names in my portfolio would be AMD and NVIDIA that when I look at both of those names, I'm, I'm a little concerned about the fundamentals surrounding those companies as well as the technical damage that has been done and can continue. Um, I own both of those names in Joe T. I also own CMG in Joe T. Mm-hmm. So doubling up the position, I obviously own a significant amount of Joe T. And then owning it personally, I'm exposing myself to a little bit too much of uh, excessive risk. And let's be just clear so, so everybody is on the same mm-hmm. page here. I mean, the way that, that I think about this, what you own personally and what you own 
in Joe T. You can be nimble in what you own personally. Correct. You can't be in Joe T. because you only rebalance it Correct. once a quarter. Correct. Okay. Once a quarter. Right. So you can't make these kinds of changes in something like that, but you can certainly do that and be more tactical in what you own yes. um, personally. This is interesting. Um, he has a tendency to do this, but J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovic just uh, released a, a new note, literally not five minutes ago, um, who sort of stays with his uh, thematic view that the markets have priced in too much, too much negativity. Uh, equity markets price in too much recession risk is the headline today. Uh, he says equities stand to recover if a recession doesn't come through. I think most people would agree with that. Uh, given already substantial multiple derating, reduced positioning and downbeat sentiment, he does expect emerging market equities to outperform on healthy earnings and a lower equity risk premium. Overweight China equities as a macro uh, policy pivot will likely drive growth acceleration into the second half, says uh, to Joe's point, we would use any dips in oil or energy stocks to add given limited oil spare capacity, strong demand and attractive valuations. Turn it to you for uh, your, your thought uh, here to what Marco was saying and something that you heard from Jim a little bit earlier, too. So, and back to my earlier point, I do think the second half is better than the first for a lot of those reasons. And if we do get confirmation that we're not in a recession and things are better, you should see a bounce in cyclical sectors. The thing that I would say to Jim's point about not being that worried about macro and a lot of people that aren't worried about this is what I worry about is the consumer and the breakdown in the consumer because everybody keeps citing it as the strong piece. There's been a huge growth in consumer credit and people have spent down their savings. Now they're starting to spend on credit cards. We saw 18% month over month increase in airfare last month. People are still paying it. At some point, they run out of money. So I think we need to see a little bit more of a breakdown in those indicators first. Which I throw back to you, Jim, to respond to because I've raised that issue with you before. Yeah. It's sort of misjudging, if you want to say that word, the strength of the consumer because the travel economy post-COVID this summer looks so great. So making a blanket assumption that the consumer's great and the consumer's flush and the consumer's strong and the consumer's going to continue to spend when the reality is they're picky and choosy and they're spending on things that they haven't been able to do for the past couple of years. And then they're going to pull the person. Yeah, I would be foolish if I if I didn't agree that there are risks out there and Liz hits some of them on the nail. I pay attention very closely to consumer sentiment. And right now it's awful, dropping. which actually which leaves room. Lowest level uh, well, since 11. I, I, I know. And, but but actually, let me let me get to a bigger point here is I'm aware of that risk very much. I'm not I'm not ignorant to it. I think uh, what Marco Kalanovich is saying is worth highlighting, though. If you look at where estimates are for next year on the S&P 500, $250 a share. Get, just for a second, let's assume the analysts are right. I understand they could very well be wrong. OK, but that would imply that we're currently trading at 16 times next uh, year's earnings. And if this is the question, if there isn't a recession, if job and wage growth is strong enough and productivity picks up enough to let that happen without inflation continuing to increase. I agree. Those are big ifs. But if that happens, could that multiple not go to 18 times and you get a 15 percent return? Nothing in what I just said is unreasonable. It's a question of the probabilities. And again, this comes down to inflation, which I mean, I'm just on tenterhooks for the next two months, seeing if there's a crack in inflation. That's what we I'm need. just trying to think like what 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 is reasonable? I think that's the word you use. 250 on earnings. Is that reasonable or or a pipe dream? Well, it's where we are now. 
It's where it's, you know, yeah. I, I got you, which, Scott. I really got which you. Is and I'm it dancing. Like a pipe dream. I'm dancing. <laughs> right? I mean, let's, let's play. Yeah, let's no, play but, oh, no, 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 no. Hold on. Let's, let's play your game. Let, let's play, yeah. you know, okay. the could be or the risk versus reality, right? Is 250, it yep. could be wrong or is it likely to be wrong? The consumer, well, yes, it, the, the risk is that the consumer slows down. Is it more reality, though, yeah. than risk? Are you, are you, are you dealing with so, the, the front yeah. and, and, and now of, of what looks like it's, it's happening already? Sentiment is, is terrible from the most recent read, et cetera. Yeah. And it, it, listen, it's a very accurate description of where we are right now. You know, at my firm, it's not just me. We have a, we have a probability of a 20% recession next year. I know some people up towards 35, 40%. I forget where David Costin is. I used to work with David Costin. I hold him in very high regard. His estimate uh, for next year's earnings is $239 a share. So call that roughly 4% where the analysts are. Um, I, you know, he seems to be placing a little bit more weight on the probability uh, of a recession next year. But I think the point is, is that there's variability around where that number comes in. What if we danced with the idea that it comes in greater than expectations? And I don't say that to sound foolish. Let's face it, for the last seven quarters, including the quarter we just reported, earnings have come in better than expected. What if 250 is 4% too low and it's 260? My point being is that we need more time for this to develop, but at 16 times next year's earnings, I'm okay hanging in there. I'm not saying I feel great. I don't. But I'm okay hanging in there right now. The, the, the complexity in that is the pricing of energy. And in full disclosure, I'm long June crude oil futures and June natural gas futures as we sit here today. Mm -hmm. you know, oil's up 8% this month. Natural gas is up 8% this month. Oil's back to 112.75. Natural gas is trading 782. So there's the complexity. What's the next strategic move to try and increase supply? I think we're, we're out of those moves. It's really now about tempering demand. Consumer sentiment, lowest level in 20, since 2011. I actually think that's a good thing. I think you want to cool off the well, consumer demand. You know, demand, cooling demand is what the Fed needs to do. That's what it is intent on doing. No, they're in the process of well, doing it. in the process. Right. Well, they're just getting started. Exactly. <laughs> then that's a big part of the story of, of what we're debating with, with Jim. This is the beginning, not the end. Up next, the ETF winner that has been betting against Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation Fund. I think you know what that is at this point. Halftime, we'll be right back. Dow's positive by just about 7. S&P, NASDAQ, still in negative territory. The NASDAQ nearly by 1%. Back right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? 
Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani, one of the few big gainers in the ETF world this year. The bet against Kathy Wood, the Tuttle Capital Short Innovation ETF, S-A-R-K, seeks to capture the inverse of Kathy ARK Innovation Fund on a daily basis. It's up 77% this year. Now it's created a new product which seeks to capture the opposite of that. Two times the daily exposure of ARK. Let's talk to its creator, Matt Tuttle, Managing Director of AXS Capital, uh, AXS Investments, Mac. You have a successful launch of a short Kathy Wood ETF. Two weeks ago, you launched that long ARC ETF. What's the motivation to have a long and a short ARC fund now? Yeah, so, I mean, if there's one thing that people can agree on on ARC-K is that it, it, it's going to move. You know, whenever, whether it's up, whether it's down, it's going to move big. So we wanted to give investors you know, the opportunity to be able to play both sides. You know, we look at Sark is a better hedge than anything that's out there. You know, we look at TARC as a great tactical tool. You know, also for people who are fans of the RK strategy, maybe people are holding it at, at a loss at this point. You know, TARC could also create some great opportunities there. Matt, I asked Kathy Wood a month ago how she felt about having a fund that shorted her ideas. Here's what she told us. There hasn't been another situation where an ETF has been created to bet against another ETF. Uh, and, and my attitude towards that is, wow, they are so sure that American innovation is is not uh, going to be a sensible place to invest, that they have created a fund to short our strategy. From my point of view, if we are right and I trust our research, they're doing no research. They're just making a judgment call, I think, on valuations. But based on our research, if we're right, they are going to have to cover their shorts. Matt, can you respond to that? Are you shorting American innovation? We're not shorting American innovation. So, you know, remember, just because one portfolio manager says a company is innovative doesn't make it innovative. Uh, companies that are currently innovative have to stay innovative. So, yeah, I mean, research is, is very important there. Again, what we're doing is we're providing investors a tool. And it's a tool in the case of Sark to me to, to hedge this current macro environment, what's going on. You know, certainly there are people who are using it because they're negative on, on RK directly, you know, and, and, and that's fine as well. Okay, thank you, Matt. Coming up on ETF Edge, Matt will update us on the coming wave of leveraged and inverse single stock ETFs coming in 2022. We're talking about leveraged bets coming on Tesla, NVIDIA, and other companies. He'll be joined by Ben Slavin. He's the global head of ETFs at BNY Mellon. And John Davi is the chief investment officer at Astoria Portfolio Advisors. Plus, how this intense volatility is affecting trading in the ETF world. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime. Back right after this. 
Here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Emergency services are working to clear debris from the streets of the Ukrainian city of Odessa after yet another Russian missile strike there. According to state officials, several private buildings and tourist areas were damaged by the blast. Four people were injured in the attack, including one child. The European Union's efforts to impose a new round of sanctions against Russia are hitting a slowdown as a small group of countries oppose a ban on imports of Russian oil. The 27-nation bloc has already implemented five rounds of sanctions on Moscow, and some leaders are still confident an agreement on a sixth package can be finalized in the coming days. Meanwhile, the Swedish government is formally deciding to apply for NATO membership. The move ends more than two centuries of military non-alignment in a historic shift prompted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The decision follows neighboring Finland's announcement just days ago to also formally apply to join NATO. Tune in to News with Shepard Smith tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern, for more coverage on the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and the reaction from across Europe. Scott, back to you. Right, Seema, I appreciate that. Thank you, Seema Modi. One of our investment committee members is making a move in the market, buying a stock. It's Steve Weiss. He joins us on the phone. Now, my first reaction to you, uh, I appreciate you calling in, is when you were sitting with us the other day, you said you had trimmed back literally every position that you had, even the ones that you like the most. Now you're actually buying a stock back that you had previously sold. Why? Delta. Yeah, well, so very simply put, I sold Delta. It was up 20% in, in just, you know, two, three weeks. I, I'm still very bearish on the market, but there are opportunities. I think it's very difficult, and ultimately it may turn out to be wrong. I'm getting lucky today, obviously, that's even green based on the spirit news. But there's, a, there's just a greater... Uh, bifurcation among the uh, among the consumer and the haves and the have-nots. And the have-nots have getting even less for inflation, but the haves have booked their flights for the summer that you can't. I'm in Chicago today, and there's not an empty seat on any planes you book it. I'm traveling again next week. No seats anywhere. So before inflation really took off, you had a lot of these vacations booked already. Uh, coming out of the pandemic. So what I'm hoping for in Delta is that it turns into another solid trade. So, and if it takes a while to get there, that's fine. I don't expect to be as lucky as I was last time in a two, two and a half week hold, but the stock's cheap. And I think they've got a good book of business and good visibility. As we heard from all the CEOs of the airlines talk during the quarter, yet the stocks are down from the quarter. So it's yeah. very simply a tactical trade, and I keep my exposure extremely low. Tactical, uh, I mean, not- I mean, let's just be honest too, all right? Tactical for you can be, uh, you know, it could be the shortest time period that that exists. There's no guarantee that you'll you're going to be in this by the end of the week, next week. Um, I guess you'll be in it in it still by the end of the day. Um, I'm just looking at the stock and the fact that it's basically flat year to date. So don't you think a lot of the positive news around the airlines is already in the airlines? And that's the only reason in a pretty difficult market that a stock like this is even flat on the year? No, I I think that's even a bigger conversation, Scott, because we see companies that are reporting that are blowing out numbers. I use the example of GXO Logistics, where they just blew out numbers, even relative to my bullish uh, you know, expectations, and the stock was up on the day the market was down a thousand points, and the next day it's down five percent. 
So no, so the market for the fundamentals is not taking into account the fundamentals on basically, I'd be hard-pressed to think of any stock where it is, despite the stuff being known. And it's no different, frankly, in the conversations that we had earlier in the year, where said, hey, everybody knows the Fed's going to be aggressive. Everybody knows inflation is running high. But guess what? They didn't really know it because the market's traded down significantly, 20% since then. Mm-hmm. So I'm using a stop on it. I haven't put the stop in yet. I will put a stop. Okay. Um, so, you know, but sometimes the position, uh, you know, gets gets so big where stops don't matter because you trade right through them, and uh, then you wind up executing much lower than you want to. So, um, so right now it's just a mental stop, and I'm and I'm watching it. But uh, you know, what can it go down to? Thirty six at this point. I'm okay with that. Uh, I'm not okay with it lower. Um, so, okay. so it's a trade. It's one of the few I put on. No, that, that that's all good. I. Frankly, the mere fact that you're adding anything was enough of an eyebrow raise for me, just given what your view was, uh, what your view has been, correct, correctly so, yeah. and what your view was when you sat here the other day and suggested that even the ones you love, uh, you, you were trimming. So I appreciate you calling in and telling us about this. Steve Weiss, thank you. We'll see you back on the desk. Straight ahead, we're following the money where the whales invested in Q1. Plus, during May, we are celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage Featuring some of our CNBC teammates and contributors, here is Michael Yoshikami, Destination Wealth Management CEO and founder. My heritage really has taught me how important it is uh, to really be focused on uh, results, to really be focused on trying to do the best I possibly can do every single day. And I think that that contributes greatly to the success I've had in the business world. There's a tremendous uh, population of investors that are looking for help, and, and they many times are looking for help um, from folks that can really understand their culture and their background. So I think there's tremendous opportunity for Asian Americans to continue to advance in the financial services world. The deadlines for the latest 13F filings after the bell today, and we're already getting some very interesting trends emerging. Our Leslie Picker always following the money for us right here on the half and has found what you what'd you see. Yeah, Scott, while March may seem like ancient history, given the recent volatility in the market, it's the latest marker we have for how larger money managers have been trading their long equity positions this year. Those 13F filings for Q1, as you mentioned, do after the bell today, but some notable ones have trickled out already. Broadly speaking, we've seen a lot of selling across the board, especially in the media space. D1, led by Dan Sunheim, pared back an $840 million stake in Disney by 68% during the quarter. Soros also decreased his Disney holdings by 73% to hold just $4 million worth by quarter end. Nelson Peltz's Tryan completely sold out of a billion-dollar position in NBC News parent company Comcast. Baupost Seth Klarman pared back a stake in Nextar Media by a third. But not all managers are selling into the recent volatility. While we're still awaiting the full 13F filing, Berkshire Hathaway appears to be adding to certain positions. This month, Warren Buffett's firm boosted its stake in Occidental Petroleum by nearly 7 million shares. It's also been buying shares of HP, scooping up another 10 million shares of that company last month. And at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting a few weeks ago, Buffett said that his firm now owns 9.5% of Activision Blizzard, which would imply they've been building on last year's purchases of that merger arbitrage play. Now, we should get the bulk of filings after the close today, including Berkshire Hathaway's very much anticipated, as always, 13F. Scott? Yeah, no doubt. All right, Leslie, thank you very much. 
Uh, you looking out for any, um, you know, in, we always look at these 13 Fs and you're like, well, they're kind of backward looking. But given that they're recently backward looking and the environment is, has been so messed up, maybe they're more interesting than, than, than most periods, just because you do want to see what the trends are that emerge from this. They are, but what, what's, what's really interesting to me is the transparency in Kathy Wood's ARC fund. And think for a moment about sentiment in the market. Her AUM is still strong. In fact, her ABUM grows. What does that say overall about people's risk assumption when they're looking at these innovation hypergrowth stocks that have had the chainsaw fall on it? Maybe well, we need- like, Well, those stocks have come down a but, lot. The, the you know, stocks are, aren't necessarily, I mean, this is what people have said to me. Stocks are not necessarily that expensive relative to real rates. So you look at where you're gonna get growth Mm-hmm. And you go to a stock that's down 70, 75 percent to get the growth that you were getting before it was down. 70, I, I don't know. I've been doing this a long time. You were getting to, to me when you begin to see and, I, and, and by no means do I want this uh, for her personally. But if you yeah. begin to see a contraction in AUM, people moving away from the strategy, that's part of the bottoming process. No, nope. we, we marvel at even, you know, in the most recent periods of the most upset in the market. We're like, wow, you know. The X amount of money continues to flow into the, to the ARC funds. It, it's, an, it's an interesting phenomenon uh, to follow. All right. There is a bullish call on Netflix. We debate that in our call of the day, particularly because who it's from. Welcome back. Wedbush is Michael Pachter upgrading Netflix to outperform from neutral. The firm saying Netflix is now, quote, an immensely profitable, slow growth company. It's our call of the day. You, you uh, did a little bit of a double take when I said that because, look, he's been the most outspoken bear on Netflix for as long as I can literally remember. Now, a few months ago or a handful of months, he upgraded it from a sell to neutral. But now he actually says the price target of 280, that's his price target, is achievable within the next 12 months. I think, you know, we, we have to have a little bit of what we call the risk on environment return to the market. I always think of Netflix relative to Disney, and I do that because the importance of streaming. So now on a valuation basis, if I'm measuring Disney relative to Netflix, I still think that Netflix probably provides the better opportunity longer term. But I'm not in either position. Jim, Farmer Jim, you, you, you have Paramount. I know you have Disney, too. And you suggest that Netflix's problems are Netflix's problems, not everybody else's problems. Um, well, that that comment certainly seems to be backed up by the results from Disney and Paramount in the last quarter, where they meaningfully grew their streaming subscriber numbers. But my, my question about Netflix, which I'm going to let hanging, is how, how did management let literally one third of its subscriber base just hang out paying nothing, freeloading? I mean, that's a that's a very big operational misstep. And I know I was criticizing myself justly uh, with the operational missteps right. of Boeing. But the difference here, the difference here is there's competition all over the streaming space. You can't have operational missteps like that in that competitive of an environment. Right. Boeing, at least, is a duopoly. We got we got to run. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. I hope you'll join me in overtime, four o'clock Eastern today. Mark Lazary, the chairman and CEO of Avenue Capital, will be with us. We'll get his thoughts on the markets, um, what the Fed needs to do. Remember last time he was with us as well, he, he, he talked to us about the situation in China having changed. I think that was the word that he used uh, for the worse. 
uh, from an investor standpoint. So we'll get an update from Mr. Lazary a little bit later, about three hours from now. Liz Young, final trade. Low volatility ETF. I think we have to fight through some more bumps for the next couple months. Okay. Farmer Jim. Yeah, a laggard in the energy space, Kinder Morgan, I really think it's starting to break out right here, and it should, has almost a 6% dividend yield, and it's transporting mainly natural gas, which we know is in high demand here in the U.S. and abroad. So Kinder Morgan, I think, is breaking out. Okay, what do you got? I've got Merck breaking out to a multi-year high, mm-hmm. cheap on a valuation basis. I told some people to buy it. They didn't listen to me. So it's fun. we got less than 30 seconds, obviously, but KMI, right? So we're talking energy. Merck, we're talking healthcare. Those are the only two sectors that look good to you? I'm more concerned about things in my portfolio where there's excessive risk. I bring it like back full circle from where we started the conversation. That's what you said. Mm-hmm. Buy healthcare, buy energy. Where was oil? Like 116? Wherever I saw it now? 113. About 113. All right. Yep. Does it for us. Thank you. I'll see you in a little bit. The exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.